Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you, the God of angel armies, are always by our side. We can always count on you. You are the one who blesses your church. You love your church. You love your people. And Lord, we just bask in that love that you have for us. And we thank you for it. We ask, Lord, that as we open your word, that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, may the Spirit of God come into this place and speak to our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would challenge us not just to listen to the word, but to be doers of the word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, quicken us and enable us to hear your voice and to uh, not just assent or agree with what is said, but, Lord, to act on it. And I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me, that I might speak your word in power and in boldness, and that it would be in truth, and that we would hear your voice today. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever felt, like, completely insignificant? I feel this way often when I'm out in the wilderness. If you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains and you start climbing in the Rocky Mountains, it doesn't take much to feel insignificant and tiny. Uh, you know, sometimes when I'm, I'm just enjoying nature, I feel insignificant. And uh, maybe the other day I was beside Niagara Falls and just watching the grandeur of all this water pouring down this cliff and going, whoa, this is amazing. But I felt kind of tiny. And I remember, you know, being dragged out of my canoe by the power of the Madawaska River and shoved down into its depths and feeling like I can do nothing against this force, beating my body to shreds and stealing my glasses, my wedding ring, my shoes, my everything off me. <laughs> and it just felt insignificant. But most intense is when I go out in the wilderness and I sleep under the stars and I look up at the vast expanse of the Milky Way, and I see all those stars, and I hear my science teacher saying how big those stars are and how far away those stars are. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. In all of this, I am this, this insignificant tiny speck on some tiny speck of a planet, on some tiny speck of a solar system in the vastness of space. And God created all of that? Oh, my goodness. And I feel this kinship with a shepherd boy who wrote Psalm 8. Because I feel like he had the exact same experience as me. I get goosebumps on my arm thinking about it. That he's there 3,000 years ago, and he's got the exact same experience as I have today, looking at the exact same stars. And he wrote about it in Psalm 8, and he says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glories above the heavens. For when I consider your heavens... The works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have put in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. (laughs) The shepherd boy, David, knew exactly how I feel. And he wrote it in those words. I feel a kinship with him. And I know that in a few weeks, I'm going to be laying on a cot in the African plain 
looking up through my mosquito net at those same stars and going, oh my goodness, I feel so small. And this little plane with thousands of trees stretching miles of every direction and sand everywhere, and I'll just feel so, so insignificant. It's going to wash over me. I'm, I kind of put it like like akin to a fly being in on the wall in the kitchen of Bill Gates' home, you know? Just looking at all the grandeur of all the marble and expensive stuff all through his kitchen and going, oh man, I am feeling so insignificant here, like a fly on the wall. <clears throat> but it's interesting. Bill, de, uh, Bill, <laughs> David didn't stop with the feeling of insignificance. He went on and he marveled that God would crown us insignificant human beings with glory and honor. And that he would set us insignificant humans in charge of his creation. Oh, I need someone to run this place. Why don't you guys run it, you know? And then God does the amazing and he takes his son and he sends his son to earth to die for us. You've got to be kidding me. That's, that's like Bill Gates going up to the fly on the wall and going, Oh, here's a little chocolate, my little fly. Why don't you join our home? Instead of just squashing it like a bug on the wall. And, he, and then turning around and saying, And little fly, why don't you run Microsoft for me? What? That's how I feel. That's what God did with us. He's put us in charge of everything. And it's just like, I can't believe this. But you know what? David never let his feelings of insignificance block out the responsibility that God gave us. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. And David felt the weight of the responsibility, even though he felt insignificant. Chuck Swindoll, and, and so, so this is the theme uh, of our, uh, for us this morning. Insignificance versus responsibility. Insignificance versus responsibility. Chuck Swindoll says, in an overpopulated world, it's, under, it's easy to underestimate the significance of one, peop- one person. There are so many people who have so many gifts and skills who are already doing so many things that are so important. Who needs me? I'm just some insignificant person in the vast scheme of this universe. What can I, as one individual, contribute to the overwhelming needs of the world? It's just easy to feel insignificant. What what can I do? I, I don't really have any responsibility for this world. The need is too great. What can I do about world poverty? What, what can I do about the unsaved multitudes? What can I do about our government steamrolling its agenda about sex education? What can I do about this government steamrolling uh, LGBTQ indoctrination? What can I do about the, the uh, reproductive rights that the government is imposing on, on Canadians? That basically reproductive rights is code for you're allowed to abort your unborn child. What can I do about it? I'm just one person. I feel so insignificant in the face of all, all of this. I mean, what can I do? But the fact of the matter is, 
you are the only you in the world. There's only one of you. God's designed you. And God has given you a responsibility that is yours uniquely and alone. It's no one else's responsibility. It's your responsibility. And God has given it to you to perform. Edward Hale says, I am only one, but I'm still one. I cannot do everything, but I can still do something. And just because I cannot do everything, I will not to refuse to do the something that I can do. Amen? Amen. We know that we have a unique set of skills. You know, you, you have an, a unique set of skills. I mean, you have a unique heritage. There's preci- precise events that have brought your life to the point where you're sitting in a church today, listening to the Word of God. Uh, there's hard knocks that you've had. There's obstacles you've had. There's joys that you've had. There's triumphs that you've had. And they've all set in motion to shape you as the individual you, the unique you that you are. You, it shaped your personal convictions your passions, your skills, even your appearance, your voice, your style, your sphere of influence, there's only one you. And did you know that God has a specific responsibility designed for you? Your parents can't fulfill it. Your spouse, they they can help you out, but they can't do your responsibility. Nobody can cover for you. But they're your responsibilities. It's easy to see the significance of one individual when we look backwards in history. It's hard to see the significance of one individual when we think of looking forward into the future. What can I do? But you know, the individuals that made huge impacts in the past, they were just regular individuals, regular people like you and I, regular Joes, regular plain Janes. And they made huge differences. Remember what the Bible says? James says, oh, did our slides disappear? I don't know what happened. Elijah was a man just like us. Oh, it came back. Yay. Elijah was a man just like us. We think of Elijah as this incredible hero that calls down fire from heaven and, and stops the rain for three years. And then on his command, it starts raining. I mean, whoo, he's just an ordinary guy, just like us. No difference. We tend to think of the movers and shakers in history as though they were superhuman. But there's no demigods. They're all just people like us. Think of the military campaigns waged out through the ages that turned on the action of one brave soldier who went and did some heroic action and changed the whole course of the battle. Think of the artistic contributions of Michelangelo or or, uh, Da Vinci or or Beethoven. Think of the great investors, uh, inventors, Edison, Galileo, Einstein, Newton, or explorers like Vancouver, Columbus, or, or Livingston, who literally changed the course of history. One person just going out and doing one thing that they felt called to do. Or missionaries like Hudson Taylor or or Judson. Or the courageous preachers who stood in the gap between God and man and have called people to repent and called people to salvation. Like Augustine, Tyndale, Ambrose, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, Moody, Spurgeon, Wellesley. 
Welsig and Graham, just to name a few, standing in the gap and saying, no, I will stand up. I will go where God, I will do what God is calling me to do. One insignificant person taking their stand of faith and making a difference for all the world to know. Consider, you, you might say, well, you know, like, I'm not one of those. Can you vote? Do you go to the vote, vote polling station and vote? Consider this, what one vote, one vote can do. In, 19, in 1645, a long time ago, Oliver Cromwell gained control of England, the greatest empire in the world at the time, with one vote. One voter made all the difference, and he became the leader of England. In 1649, one vote caused Charles I of England to be executed. One vote. 1776, one vote gave the states the English language rather than German. Did you know that? I didn't know that. One vote, or we would have been saying, oh, I'm not even going to try. Never mind. <laughs> In 1839, Marcus Morton won the election as the governor of Massachusetts by one vote. In 1845, Texas joined the United States by a one-vote margin. In 1868, President Andrew Johnson was saved from impeachment by one vote. Phew! Uh, in 1875, one vote changed France from a monarchy to a republic. In 1876, one vote gave Rutherford Hayes the presidency of the United States. In 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party of Germany. Did you know that? One vote. Who stayed home that day? Someone voted, and someone shrugged the responsibility. One insignificant person changed history. Changed history. Check out the pages of your Bible. Look through it. Are there great grand tales of large groups of people doing things? I can't think of any. Maybe one or two. But you'll see time and time again the story of an individual feeling called by God to do this or that thing and God coming down and blessing that individual. It's full of stories about individuals. You look at you look through Hebrews chapter 11, Name after name after name of individuals who had faith and who stepped out and did what God called them to do and changed the course of history. Individuals. You know, it's interesting that God is actually going around. I believe God is here right this morning going around looking for an individual to stand in the gap. For an individual to step up and say, yeah, I'll I'll do it. I'll go, I'll whatever, and answer the call of God calling you into a service. This is what the the scriptures say. For the eyes of the Lord range to and fro across the earth to strengthen the hearts of those fully committed to him. 
He's here looking. Is there a heart here that's committed to me? I'm going to strengthen that person. I'm going to pour something. And he's looking actively. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Is that, is that what, how this day is going to end? Is it going to end with God going, uh, yeah, I gave my word this morning, but nobody responded. There's no one really concerned about the unborn children in Canada. There's no one really concerned about the street people in Canada. Ah, oh, there's no one really. Is God going to be disappointed? I don't know. We'll see. In Ezekiel, he said in uh, 22, verse 29, the people of the land practice extortion, commit robbery, they oppress the poor, the needy, they mistreat the foreigner, they deny them justice. And the Lord says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. Can you imagine? It's kind of like God is over here. He's the just judge. And he's saying, can you please build a wall so I don't come and destroy those people who are defaming my name, who are unjust. And, 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 and as a just God, I cannot stand it. Can someone please, please stand in the gap and keep me from destroying just pray. Do what Moses did. Pray that the Lord would not destroy the people. Do what, do what uh, uh, Noah did and build a boat and save the people. Can someone please stand in the gap so I don't destroy everyone? Wow, what a plea. What a plea on God, from God himself looking around for someone to, to stand up. God looked for that. God's looking for that one missionary to invest in an area of the world so that a tribe will get saved. God is looking for the one politician who will stand up for righteousness so that a country will get saved. God is looking for one strong-willed person who will stand up in the face of overwhelming odds and say, no, this is not right. This should not be done. You know the story of Wilbur, William Wilberforce a few centuries ago? He stood up to the most powerful nation in the world and said, you should not be taking slaves from Africa and enslaving them and selling them off all over the place. This is immoral. It's wrong. It should not be done. And all the businessmen of, of uh, Europe and Great Britain said, no, 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 no. There's no way we could find, we could, we could survive financially without slaves. It can't be done. You're full of it. Get out of here. Get lost. But William Wilberforce kept shouting the same thing over and over and over. And two days before he died, finally a law was passed abolishing slave trade in Great Britain and all her colonies. Praise God for one individual who would stand up and say, I don't care what everyone says. I don't care how, how little chance I have of winning. I'm going to stand for what is right. Back when I was two years old, God found his man in the form of Martin Luther King, who when I was two stood up on the Lincoln uh, Memorial and, and declared, I have a dream. 
And God was with that man, and God propelled his vision forward. And his dream is somewhat alive today. Uh, It's not completely fulfilled, but it's definitely changed since the 1960s. Way back, 2,500 years ago, God found his woman. A woman who decided to put her life on the line and break with protocol, speak her mind, and confront a tyrant. And of course, her name is Esther. We've been studying. Esther is the woman of the hour. We've been studying her. We've been looking at this fascinating book of Esther for the beginning of this year. And we left off two weeks ago with a cliffhanger. I mean, remember? The evil mastermind, had uh, Haman, had been manipulating King Xerxes to to write out an edict to, to destroy all the Jewish people. The king didn't even know what the people were called. They were just defying the king and wouldn't, wouldn't bow down to the king and said all kinds of things that were mm, vaguely true but not completely true. And so the the edict went out to eradicate all the Jews from the entire Persian kingdom. The entire Persian kingdom, the kingdom included Israel. That included all the Jews in the whole world were going to be eradicated. Genocide of an entire race. This was a holocaust in the making. And we left off with the king and Haman sitting down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Can you, can you believe this? They're like, oh, well, we'll just have some tea and some, oh, we'll have a little drink. Get drunk here while we're just plotting to slaughter thousands of people. It's sort of like Mary Antoinette. Let them have cake. You know? Like, absolute unconcern. No concern whatsoever. It's kind of like the ghettos of Warsaw in the the 30s and 40s when people were confused and going, what is going on? Why are the Jews being corralled into these places and, and starved and pillaged? What is going on? People didn't know. And so we ended two weeks ago with this death sentence hanging over the Jews. And one of the young people stopped me in the hallway after the message and he said to me, so what happens to the Jews? Do they all get killed? And I'm like, dude, read the story, you know? <laughs> I said, well, you I, you know, I didn't want to do it, be a spoiler. So, I, well, you just got to come back next week, find out what happens, you know? <laughs> so, so I don't see him here this morning, but anyways. <clears throat> Uh, so let's carry on the story. The edict goes out, mass pandemonium ensues. We start chapter 4, and uh, Mordecai is reading the edict to wipe out the Jews, and he's like, oh, no! And he starts wailing and yelling and crying in the streets, and he, and he puts on sackcloth. You know what sackcloth is? It's like this stuff. Can you imagine? I don't really want to put this over my nice shirt. But uh, can you imagine wearing this thing? Ah, itchy, awful. And then they, they'd smear ashes on themselves to make them look just haggard and awful. You know, it, it's kind of what they did back there, wailing loudly and bitterly. Have you ever heard someone wail loudly and bitterly? You don't see that too often here in Canada. You go to the Middle East, you see it all the time. And, but he went only as far as the king, king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter the king's gate. It's, it's like, yeah, the king's a party animal. 
He doesn't want to be burdened with the affairs of the petty people. You know, the people who are going to be slaughtered. Oh, well, you know, like, don't bother me with those details. Give me some wine. This guy's nuts. He's a tyrant. He doesn't want to be bothered with the people. You can't go to sackcloth. You can't mourn in front of the king. Oh, we won't want any mourning. That's depressing. Well, they're depressed. They're about to get slaughtered. You know? And so in every province which the edict was ordered of the king, great mourning came among the Jews. And there was fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This was awful. But this is a traditional mourning method. It's quite different than the modern mourning method, wouldn't you say? Yesterday, this room was filled with at least this many people. And we had the traditional Western mourning going on. People were going up and giving hugs to Amy and Sam and and just saying how sorry they were for their loss. And Amy stood up here and, and she shared the story of Nicholas. And I'm telling you, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. Everybody was weeping quietly and Kleenexes were being passed around and, and everybody was crying. But there was no wailing. <laughs> it was Western. We, we kind of hide a little bit. We're, we're a little bit ashamed of our crying. We don't want to make a big scene. We just, but we're going to weep. We're sad and we mourn. It's our way of mourning. We mourn. We grieve with people. Tragedy brings people together. The room was full. People wanted to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. But one thing about yesterday, it was very Western. Take a similar scene in the streets of Lebanon. Holy hoist the casket up in the air. And everybody's going down the street saying, wailing and weeping and yelling and throwing dust up into the air and, and just crying their eyes out. It's a big commotion, at least to our Western eyes. To them, it's just, it's just normal. This is how you grieve. You weep and you wail and you cry and it's very noisy. Well, this is what Mordecai did. He's actually yelling in the streets. Oh, God, please save us. Oh, God, this is so horrible. Oh, I can't believe it. He's wailing in the streets. And people are like, dude, chill. What's wrong with you? You know, like they didn't understand what Mordecai was all so upset about. And, oh, Prince Esther is in the palace. And she finds out from one of her aides that uh, Mordecai is out in the streets behaving very strangely. And, uh, and so Esther's like, what's going on? You know, she doesn't know anything about the edict. She doesn't know anything about what's going on. She's got this privileged life up in the palace, and it's all beautiful and good. And she's like, maybe she's looking out the window, and, oh, Mordecai, you're all dressed in rags. What's wrong with you? I don't know. Sorry about the English accent, but, you know, it just, just makes it effective, you know. <laughs> but, but she's concerned. And so she sends Hamathath out with a bag of clothes. Mordecai, I put something decent on. You know, like, what are you out in the street like some hysterical dramatist? That's not you, Mordecai. Put something decent on. You know, in the Middle East... 
they, uh, they smear their faces with ashes and throw dust in the air. And over here, we're like, oh, dressed in your finest black suit. Huh? I think they're a little more attuned to reality over there. Because hysterical dramatist is actually the right response to your, all of your people and family being wiped out. Actually, that's pretty normal. So, when Hathak goes out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and confronts him, he says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And, uh, and so, Esther sends him back out there and says, well, find out what the problem is then. And so, Hathak... Hath, uh, Hard to say his name. He goes out there. In Mordecai, he's out by the king's gate, and he starts explaining to Hathak. He told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that, that Haman had decided to put in the king's treasury to wipe out the Jews. In fact, he takes a copy, and he writes down all the wording of the edict. He goes out to the, you know, the post in the town square and looks at the edict, and he writes it down word for word. And he gives it to Hathak, and he says, please give this letter to Queen Esther and explain to her that, that uh, the king is going to wipe out all the Jews in the entire world. Like, this is tragic. So yes, I'm going to stay in sackcloth and yes, I'm going to keep mourning. Just tell Queen Esther to go and talk to her husband, the king. And maybe he can do something about this and save the Jews. Notice, notice he's very exact about the information. It's not some hearsay. He's saying the exact amount of money that Haman offered to give the king. He talks about the the word, the very wording. He writes it down right from the edict to give it to Esther. He may be in sackcloth and ashes, but he wasn't exaggerating. He wanted to get it right. And he's just lining up the details to get it right. So what? Why is this so important? Well, friends, there is a lot of rumor and gossip going around. And when we stand against something, we need to get it right. We need to not be standing against rumor and hearsay. We need to be be very careful about how we challenge things around us. Innumerable people's lives have been ripped apart by rumor, exaggeration, and hearsay. I mean, if Patrick Brown is not lying, then what a tragedy that his life is destroyed by hearsay. It's awful. And I'm not, I'm not saying one way or the other what's going on there. But it could very well be a huge tragedy to destroy someone politically just by rumor. A few months ago, a rumor was dropped into my lap. Uh, that one of the leaders of the alliance in Canada, a, a, a negative, terrible rumor about him, was given to me you know, by a reliable source. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Let's go talk to the guy. And why don't, why don't you go talk to the leader in question? And the pastor who had, was dropping this information on my lap said, oh, no, I could never talk to him about that. And I'm like, what do you mean? Let's call him up. I'll call him up. And so I did. I called up the leader in question and said, so, uh, you know, someone mentioned that this and this has happened, and, and well, is there any truth to that? 
And the leader responded to me and he said, well, go ask these people. And so I did. I asked those people. And they said, well, this is what happened. This is what happened. They, they gave me the exact facts. And I'm like, so the rumor is completely false. It's completely fabricated. This is how people's lives get destroyed. If we don't go to the source street, get the facts straight. Get it straight. So often I get emails of someone in alarm about some situation. And I go and check it out. There's nothing to be alarmed at. It's either happened five years ago or it's just completely fabricated. And so let's be careful. You know, we even have this website called Snopes. You can actually check stuff out before you send it around and before you get everybody in a tizzy. And check it out. Find out if it's true. Um, So we need to be careful. Mordecai was careful to get the message exact. And so Hathak goes back to and reported to Esther exactly what Mordecai had told him. And uh, and so she instructed him to say to, to Mordecai, well, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that if any man or woman approaches the king without being requested, that's against the law. And when you do that, you uh, are inviting the death sentence. Uh, you know, and besides, uh, the king hasn't asked for me for over a month. It's been a month. You know, he might think I'm the jealous wife coming in to find out if he's been fooling around with anybody else. I don't know what he's going to... I mean, I'm supposing here. I mean, she hasn't been called in for 30 days. Is there a problem in the marriage? I don't know. It's not clear. But she doesn't want to rattle things because her husband has the power of a tyrant. And he can execute her just like that. And we've heard of kings executing their wives before. King of England comes to mind. (laughs) Now you might think, well, well, that's a pretty selfish answer. She's only concerned about herself. Well, what would you do? If you were in the same situation, you're going to go against the law? Go uh, protest in front of an abortion clinic inside the bubble zone? Is that what you're going to do? Go get thrown in jail? Is that what you're going to do? I don't know. I know there's one lady in Canada that does that. There's one man who stands in Parliament does that, gets thrown in jail pretty regularly. So let's not be too quick to say, oh, well, come on. Their life's at stake here. <clears throat> Look at Queen Vashti. She didn't want to get paraded around like a sex symbol. Next thing you know, she's banished from the kingdom, banished from the court. Thrown out. This is genuine fear, my friends. Esther is afraid for her life. She knows her husband's a bigoted tyrant. And she's afraid. It's not this, oh, I don't want to. My husband's kind of, you know, he's grouchy. No, this is fear. She's like, if I'm in his bad books and he gets ticked off, 
It's the gallows for me. So when Esther's words are reported to Mordecai, he sends back an answer. Now, Mordecai knew Esther. He knew what her character was like. And I think he knew how to push her buttons too. And this speech of Mordecai's, whoa, it's a powerful speech. This is what he says. Do not think that because you are the king in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. So that was probably going on in Esther's mind. I'm I'm sheltered here in the palace. You know, maybe some other people will die, but I'm okay here. And Mordecai is going, no, 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 no. Someone will know that you're a Jew. Someone will find out. And you'll get killed too. So first of all, he's, he's leveling the playing field here. You know, it's like, you're one of us. Are you with us or are you not with us? Whether or not you think you are, you're actually going to be held as one of us. And then secondly, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will, will come for the Jews, will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. He's basically saying, God is sovereign. We know that. And this is the theme of the book. God is sovereign. He's over. He's in control. So deliverance will come, but there's going to be a lot of deaths if you don't speak up. And who knows, and I love this line. This is the line of the book of Esther. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. One Jewish orphan girl a nobody. And God went, mm, I think I'll choose you and I'll put you right over here beside the king. There we go. Oh, and by the way, all your people are going to die. You, you want to do anything about that? <laughs> Such a time as this. It's one of those turning point speeches where people go, whoa. I mean, this speech has hit me between the eyes a couple of times. And I've gone, oh, yeah. I need to use what God has given me for this particular moment in time. I need to use what God has entrusted to me with this speech for such a time as this. (coughs) And I felt the weight of this speech a number of times. (coughs) And the fact is, there's a limited time for us to act in response to this Sorry. A little limited time phrase when God calls us to act, calls us to seek justice, calls us to speak up, calls us to do something. And oftentimes, our whole life experience has brought us to that very moment when God is calling and saying, Son, daughter, it's time. I think I got the call last year. It's time to go to Africa. And I had a choice to make. Was I going to, you know, phone up Matt Durkee, do, go meet him in Mississauga and do this and do that? And was I going to do all that or would I just go like, wow, Lord, just make it happen for me? God's purposes will still prevail whether we act or not. But the point is, God is calling us to act. God has set us in the right position to act. It's not often that we get three pastors and this district superintendent telling us what to do, you know? Normally, it's more like a cousin saying, maybe this is the time. Maybe God has put you in this position for such a time as this. 
That's all. There's no grand megaphone of God calling out. It's just like, well, maybe this is your moment. And that's all we really need to step out and fight injustice. It's all the Samaritan needed when he saw the Jewish man on the side of the road bleeding to death. He didn't need God saying, oh, by the way, good Samaritan, this is the one you need to help. No, there was a need, and he answered the call. Whereas three priestly guys, Jewish guys, just ignored the call of God. So what will Esther do? If God, what if God has sovereignly, cho- sovereignly chosen you to do something about a neighbor who doesn't know him? What if God has sovereignly chosen you to speak up at work about some injustice? Winston Churchill had a speech like Mordecai's back in 1940, June 18th. He said, let us brace ourselves for our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will say this was their finest hour. And not four months later, with despair and destruction and almost certain failure lurking around, staring him in the face, he said, Fear and sorrow will be our companions of this journey. Hardship as a garment. Constancy our value and our only shield. We must unite. We must be undaunted. We must be inflexible. In other words, stand up. Don't give in. This is, Saint, this is Patrick Henry saying, Give me liberty or give me death. This is Nathan Hale's I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. This is standing in the gap and saying, I will be counted. I will make my stand. I will do what's right. That's what's going on here with Esther. Will you stand up and speak? Or will you wither and let the world crash and burn around you? What will you do? And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews here in Susa and fast for me. And do not eat or drink for three days, night night or day. This is not the Muslim fasting. This is the real deal. No food, three days and nights. And I and my attendants will fast as you have done. And when this is done, I will go into the king. Even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Whoa. It's not only Mordecai that knows how to make a statement, eh? If I perish, I perish. I'm going to do it. Oh, yeah. She rises to the challenge. Go, girl, go. She is amazing, this lady. God was calling through her cousin, and she decided to do the right thing. Do you remember when I opened up this message, I talked about the insignificance of, of David and how small he felt, but how important he felt his role was nevertheless i am so glad that when a bear came to steal a sheep from his sheep pen that he didn't go like oh well what 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 can i do about it it's a bear okay well you know like don't come back you stupid bear no grabs his slingshot grabs his shepherd staff goes running after the bear beats it on the head until it drops the sheep and then grabs the sheep and walks back to and, and then the same thing happens with the lion So when he comes out to watch the battle, to say hi to his brother and bring them seven cheeses, you know, 
he's like, whoa, who's this Goliath dude standing there defying the, the, the armies of Israel? And he's like, what's going on? And he starts asking around. And he starts saying to people, you know, like, like what, what will be done for the man who, you know, like slaughters this, this uncircumcised Philistine who's defying the armies of the living God? What, what will be done for the man who gets rid of this scum? And, you know, they tell him what will be done. And, and his brother finds out, you know, like, hey, what are you doing here, you little brat? Like, you're so, so conceited. Where, where have you left the little sheep? Who have you left the sheep with? You left them wandering out in the desert? Like, what, what are you doing here? Go, go back home. Stop asking these crazy questions. Go mind your own business. And David's like, what have I done? And people, word gets around. Gets to King Saul. And King Saul says, hey, son, you're, you're just a boy. You, you can't fight this guy. This guy's been fighting all his life. There's no chance of you winning. It's not going to happen. And David says, you know, that's what people think about bears and lions. But God who delivered me from the mouth of the bear and from the mouth of the lion will also deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine who's defying the armies of the living God. Whoa, there's a statement of faith. There's a speech for you. Whoa, he's out there. He's doing it. He's going. And Saul's like, okay, dude, whatever. If you want to throw away your life, go ahead. You know? And so he goes. Esther does the same thing. She comes face to face with the reality that there are evil tyrants in this world. Evil tyrants who will stand against the people of God, who want nothing more but to destroy the people of God. And they are everywhere. Um, Eugene Peterson says, wherever there is a people of God, there will be enemies of God. I want to repeat that. Wherever there are people of God, there will be enemies of God. It goes hand in hand, hand in hand. And so Esther's brought to this place where she realizes that she has enemies. It's not all a fairy tale come true in the king's palace. And she steps out of her role as beauty queen. She steps out of her role as an empty-headed sex symbol and embraces the role of hero heroine, the risk-taking role, the role of the martyr. And she steps into that role and she embraces that role, the role of a saint. And she speaks up for and identifies with God's people. And so, of course, our, our challenge is, are we going to do the same thing? It's not about her prestige and position. It's all about God. <clears throat> now, as I mentioned before, there's no mention of beseeching God or prayer in the book. But when she calls her handmaidens and friends to fast, pretty sure the whole point is that they're seeking God, that they're praying, that they're asking for hope. <clears throat> and the Bible says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. 
Uh, the Bible says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says, do not fear, I will help you. What an awesome promise from the scriptures. And I don't know whether Queen Esther read the scriptures or what, but God was going to help her through this. And so Mordecai goes away and starts asking people to fast. And so what will you, what about you? Will you cower in your corner and say, oh yeah, I know, well, I'll vote. Okay, well, that's a step. (laughs) Thanks for that. But will you stand up? God is shining his searchlight around in this room looking to and fro who will stand up for the for my righteous causes he's looking for someone to stand for justice he's looking for someone to stand up for the lives of the unborn in canada he's looking up for someone to stand up for real morality in canada not not the kind where oh well let's all be nice to one another and and respect each other's viewpoints no he's looking for someone to stand up for what's right to stand in the gap. Will you get up out of your seat and do something? Will you stand up when it may cost your reputation, where it may cost you your job and your workplace? Will you stand up when it will cost you your life? Bonhoeffer stood up for such a time as this, and it cost him his life. Martin Luther King stood up for such a time as this, and it cost him his life. But the world will never be the same because of men like this and women like this. Are you going to stand up for dysfunctional families in our community? Will you stand up for the homeless and the hungry in our community? Will you stand up helping orphans and widows and and children taken from their homes by CES? Will you stand up and fight for them? There are more fatherless children now than there's ever been. Will you stand against pornography? Will you stand against the sex trade? Do you write letters and march in protest against the wanton disregard for human children in the womb in this country? Do you advocate for the mentally challenged? Do you advocate for the immigrants whose credentials are wiped out just because they came to Canada? Do you stand your ground at the PTA meetings? Do you know how to make your voice heard? Regarding the new sex edge curriculum, what are you doing? You warming the pew? Is it nice? What are you doing? And I know you can't do everything. And I would love to do everything on that list. And I want to do everything on that list. My, I love that list. I'm like, ah, yeah, I got to do something. And why are we so afraid to speak up in this free country? You may be the only one, but you are one. We need to know that one, ma- one person makes a difference. Jesus was one person, and God used him to save the entire world. He did something. God just didn't wring his hands. Oh, my people are sinning. Oh, that's so terrible. What can we do? They don't seem to listen to my commands. I give them the whole Old Testament, and they just don't get it. Oh, No, God did something. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. I don't like confronting, and I don't like telling people what to do. And I particularly don't like telling that to my superiors. 
But I've had to do that sometimes. <clears throat> you know, my dad, he, he got elected to be on a board of his church one time. And he, was very, he came home very frustrated from a board meeting one time. He says, oh, those guys, they're all just a bunch of yes men. Whatever the pastor says, they all say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, pastor. That's good, that's good, that's good. <laughs> you know, boards are kind of like that. Uh, you know, but I remember being on our board, and one board member stood up against me and said, no, I don't think that's right, pastor. I don't think we should do that. And I'm like... Who gives you the right? <laughs> no, that's not what I said. I listened. And, and I, I disagreed. I thought we should do this. And the, that elder swayed every, all the other elders. And they all voted against me. <laughs> and I praise God for elders like that. Who will stand up and say, no, 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 pastor, we can't do that. It's hard. It's difficult to do that. But I'm very grateful for that elder doing that on that particular board meeting because I can see very clearly that it was not God's plan to do my plan. It was God's plan to do another plan. And I praise God for that. Uh, I haven't been on the district executive committee for four years. And I got to the district executive committee and uh, we were given this church that was going to do an expansion project and they want to borrow a bunch of money and they needed our okay. And all the other Dexcom members said, oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, oh, it's very important that that church get that money. And I had a look at the balance sheet from the church. And I was like, this is ridiculous. This church is drowning in debt. They're going to they're gonna go under. They're spending twice as much money as they're getting in. And I said, no. And there was a bunch of grumbling and mumbling. It turned out that it was a clerical, clerical error and the church wasn't drowning in debt. Yay. But I, had to, I spoke up and I felt very intimidated speaking up and saying no to something that was moving forward. And then not a, a month later, there's a whole team of people on the district staff uh, including the DS, all planning this thing. And I'm like, that's a really bad idea. We should not be doing that. And so I said, uh, you know, guys, I don't think this is good. And everyone's like, what are, what are you talking about? No, this is great. This is the new way of doing it. And I, I started feeling like an old ogre, stick-in-the-mud kind of guy, you know, like... And I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, I've been off the Dexcom for four years. I don't... I don't have these people's respect. They don't trust me. They don't know who I am. They don't know where I came from. And I'm the guy saying no, no, no all the time. And I felt kind of really bad. But I kind of felt like this principle is something I really believe in. And I need to say no. <clears throat> so they had a special meeting at, at the prayer conference. And all these people excitedly told us about the plan again. I'm like... <laughs> These are the reasons why I don't think we should do this. And I felt awful. I felt small. I felt like a grumpy old pastor from the hinter years defying the new young hip guys. You know, that's how I really felt. Well, I don't think we did it. <laughs> I think my voice got heard. I don't think we moved forward. The thing kind of just died. I don't know actually what happened. So, um, 
But we need to be willing to speak when no one else is speaking. You know, uh, have you spoken up against the government? You know, I went to a, a, an information meeting with Mona Foyer, our, our, our MP for this area. And I asked her in a public forum, why is the government asking us to attest to something that is against our moral convictions in order to have a summer student work here? This is immoral. This is discrimination. And I asked it in a public forum, and she got very angry and very defensive. And I'm like, and we had this back and forth publicly. That was no fun. But I was the only one. People were looking at me like, why are you disrupting the meeting? Why are you speaking up? Why you're, you're, this is not what this meeting is all about. Blah, 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 blah. And I felt very alone in standing there challenging publicly the stand of the government. Uh, Raymond and Faith want to bring their child, their son, 16-year-old son, to Canada. And the government consistently is stopping. No, 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 you're not making enough money. This, this is not right. You're not, you're not immigrants. Blah, blah, blah. And their son is not living with them. And I got riled up about it. And I went to Mona Fournier's office. And I said, this is not right. There's something wrong here. And her staff, yay, her staff is, I think, a Christian guy. He was very, very understanding and helped us. And now we've applied again. And I've, and I've given them a bunch of money to help out. And I've asked the church, can the church sponsor this boy? And I get involved. And I say, this is not right. I stand up for this one little young man who almost died last year. Uh, don't know if it's going to turn out. Please pray for, for Raymond and Faith's son that he'll be able to come. Kids die in Africa from waterborne diseases, known waterborne diseases all the time. And young ladies have to carry water jugs on their heads for 10 kilometers in the African wilderness. 10 kilometers with groups of Muslim radicals around. And God says, what are you going to do about that? You know, I felt Mordecai's speech challenging me as a pastor of a church of a few hundred people to advocate for the poor. For such a time as this, use your influence to advocate for the poor. And I know a lot of pastors who won't advocate for the poor because they're worried about their bottom line of their budget meetings. Will God provide enough for our, our church? And I'm like, fooey with that. There are people starving to death. And if we as Christians cannot step up to the plate and get over there and help them, what in the world are we doing? And so, for such a time as this, you will find that I advocate for the poor in this place. Why? Because I can. And God has called me to do so. You know, God has called us to witness to our neighbors. I hate witnessing. But people are going to hell. And I'm the only one Standing in the gap for certain people. And you're the only one standing in the gap for certain people. There's some people that only you can reach. Will you stand up? Will you join me and do what you don't like doing? You know, 
The words of Mordecai rang in my ears month after month after month. I would go to the the rallies on, on Parliament Hill proclaiming my deep regret that our country allows mothers to get rid of their children before they're born at any time. It deeply grieves me and I go. But God has placed me as the pastor for the prime minister. And Mordecai's words rang in my ears for months. For such a time as this, you, you, Bill Butner, have had the responsibility to go and speak to the prime minister. Of all the people you've been brought to this place, not by your own choice, not by some fate, by my plan. Now get out there and talk to the prime minister. And like I said earlier, I don't like telling people what to do. And I particularly don't like telling the leader of, the, of Canada what to do. But I did what Esther did. I phoned a bunch of people. I said, can you pray for me? I told a bunch of people, I'm going to go talk to the prime minister. I didn't have the guts to do it. But I told them, so I told a bunch of people that I was going to do it because then that would, you know, of course, spur me on. I got to keep my word, right? And finally, I make the appointment. I, I call him. I say, hey, can I meet with you? I want to talk to you about something. And I get an appointment, and I'm given a half hour with the Prime Minister of Canada in his office. And I, and I bring my Bible for such a time as this, and I show him all the passages which treat the unborn children as people with rights before God. And I explain to him in detail why it's so vital that our country not decimate the next generation. What has God called you to do? What has God called you to stand up for? You don't want to do it. But God is saying, for such a time as this, you need to stand. Maybe you've came into this room, listened to the sermon, and God has placed on your heart one person, one project, where you need to act for such a time as this. Will you take up the call? Will you follow Esther's lead and rise to the occasion? Or will you just sink into your couch And let the world go to hell in a handbasket. It's God calling. It's for you.